0: Good morning, my name is Mike Becker, I'm one of the pastors here, I'm thankful I get to uh, present to you uh, the word this morning. I remember back in high school, um, one of the coolest things you could do is own your own car. That was like when you could roll up on campus with your own car and all the kids on the bus are looking at you, you know you made it, you know something just happened, because you're not on the bus, you're in your car, Um, (laughs) amen. That's a a wrong place for an amen, as pastor would say, that that's going to come later, if you're really excited, then this is going to be a good, a good day. Um, so I rode, I rode the bus up until my senior year and previous to that, um, I, I, I didn't mind the bus ride. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, but I always rode with my friend, this guy, Mike. And, uh, Mike and I would ride the bus. And there was this other guy, and I don't remember his name, but I just remember him being what we would call today a pretty big bully. He was larger than the rest of us, and he wasn't really physically uh, brutal with us, but he would take our stuff and throw it out the window and break it or uh, do make fun of us and different things like that. And there really wasn't much we could do about it because he was of his sheer size. We weren't really going to come against that. Uh, we didn't really want to face bashing, so we just kind of let it happen and we dealt with it. Uh, the bus driver knew about it once in a while, but he was pretty covert about it, so we didn't really want to say anything to her because if he found out we said something, then that's gonna. She can help us on the bus, but we're not on the bus all the time. So there was kind of a you know this 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 play uh, going on uh, with us. So one day, my friend Mike decided I've had enough, and he built up the courage. The whole bus ride, my, my my friend Mike is going. He's going, Becker. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hurt. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna fight this guy. I'm like, dude, you're gonna get crushed. That is the dumbest thing anyone has ever said in the history of mankind. Don't. Please don't. He's like, no, I'm going to do it. So he walks up to the bully and he says, get off at my stop. We're, gonna, we're going at it. I'm challenging you to a fight. So the guy's like, all right. <laughs> As any bigger guy would. And so... They get off the bus and they're circling each other. I don't even think either one of them had ever been in a fight. So I don't know. They're probably scared. They probably don't. The bully's, you know, probably not fighting people because he doesn't really know how he's just using his strength as intimidation. So we're, they're circling each other and, uh, and my friend Mike, they're just waiting for the other person to make the first move because they're really not sure what they're doing. And so my friend Mike finally makes his move. And he comes up. He's got this big swing. He pulls his punch, tackles the guy on the ground. They roll around for a little bit. The other guy pushes him up. As soon as they get on the ground, they stand up. The, the bigger guy just starts pummeling my friend Mike, and he falls on the ground in a bloody heap. Now, I know you wish the story ended the other way. You were like, that was a dumb story. We wanted, we wanted to encourage you. We wanted the bully to lose. That's what we wanted. Well, um, that didn't happen that day. Mike had a lot of heart, but he didn't really have the ability or the power to overcome the bully. Uh, Bullying is actually a pretty big deal in today's culture. Bullies come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, They can be big or small. They can be popular or unpopular. They can be uh, sports. They can be athletic or unathletic. They can be boys or girls. So bullies are, you know, there's not a specific type of bully, although there are typical characteristics of a bully. Um, Here's a couple that I have found uh, to be true. Uh, They have a need to control and dominate over others. They're quick-tempered and impulsive. They take pleasure in seeing someone or even an animal in distress. They find it difficult to see a situation from another person's point of view. Uh, They refuse to take responsibility for their actions or their wrongdoing. Um, they blame the person or people they're bullying and say that they deserve what they got. Um, they're good at talking their way out of situations. They're pretty suave. They're, they're, you know, they can kind of get out of trouble with uh, the higher-ups. They're intolerant of, ind- of differences. They feel superior over others, and they're insensitive to the feelings and needs of others, and they basically lack a genuine ability to have empathy. And so um, when we look at the story of Moses, we see a bully in action on a prolific scale. Check this out. We've got a tyrant leader Pharaoh abusing an entire race of people by enslaving them and using his power to force them into hard labor. We've got an order going out by this madman. And within this story, there's an order that goes out by this madman to kill every male Israelite child because he's fearful that if the, if the Israelites become too powerful, they could be victorious in battle against the Egyptians. We've got this guy Moses not only surviving this genocide, this infant genocide, but being raised in the same palace as the tyrant who ordered his execution. Pretty cool. We see Moses being called by God to approach Pharaoh, demand the release of the Israelite slaves, and lead God's people into freedom. Just the same way that my friend Mike said, bro, I'm going to do something uh, to you today, so that I can release our people on this bus from your tyranny. Moses is called by God to set the people free under the uh, enslavement of Pharaoh. And so we can ask a lot of questions here. Number one, where was God? 400 years his people are in slavery. Why is God so quiet? My friend Mike stood up and he said, I've had enough. I'm coming at you. It didn't take 400 years for Mike to do that. It took a few bus rides and he had enough. And yet God seemed silent. Why, why was he so silent? Um, Why does he harden Pharaoh's heart? In the story, we find that every time God does something, which we're going to look at today, um, Pharaoh's heart becomes more and more hardened, and it's God's doing. God is hardening his heart intentionally. Why not soften it so the people can just be released? What was up with the plagues? Where's this God of love I hear so much about? Death and suffering and pain doesn't really seem like a loving God to me. I always like to be pretty crystal clear with who I'm talking to whenever I speak. Uh, some verses lead me to be encouraging, um, to maybe help those that have, have uh, fallen away. Uh, some verses help us to, re- to remind us about the mission of Jesus, that we are to be salt and light of the earth, sharing the gospel with people, helping them to understand who God is, helping them to cherish the Bible like we do and see it as a relevant text in our world today that God wrote, not man, but God wrote uh, the text we're using today. Uh, so sometimes um, my target's far off. Sometimes you're Christian, sometimes you're not. Uh, today I'm actually speaking to two groups of people. Those of you who are totally and vehemently opposed to the gospel message, the church, Christians, the Bible, and everything it entails. I know out of experience that some of you are in here because someone dragged you here. I know that some of you might be here um, simply, but you're not really sure what this looks like. You're, you're, you're maybe, the, Especially if this is your first time, maybe you've had horrible church experiences before. And my hope is that you can see the God of the Bible in a new way today and cherish him and, and instead of the walls that maybe you've built up. I'm also going uh, to be speaking to those of you who may have... Uh, Become weary of the journey. You've followed Jesus. You've been following Jesus, but man, the journey is hard, and you're losing hope. If you were honest with your with yourself today, and if you were honest with others, you would say, "I'm actually losing hope that God can actually fulfill the things that you say, or that the Bible says, or that one at one point in my life He said He would fulfill." If you don't fit in either one of those groups, I still believe God will speak to you. Every person in here God will speak to if you're listening. Um, But those are the two people that I am targeting. Uh, So in order to accomplish this, what I'd like to concentrate on this morning are the purposes of the plagues that uh, God brought against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, there are two purposes. This is where everything's going to fall under today. Two giant purposes of the plagues. And if we don't see them in this way, we miss the point of the plagues. Number one, the plagues were to show the Israelite people that God was back. That God was on the move. That God had heard their suffering, knew of their enslavement, and was no longer silent. Because after 400 years... And God doesn't follow through with maybe some of the things that they thought he was going to follow through. He's probably, they've probably stopped talking about him in good ways. They've probably stopped looking at him for his promises. They've probably begun to just decide, I'm not even going to really worship him. I'm not really going to follow. I don't really know what to do with this God who my ancestors talk about so much because I haven't experienced him 400 years later. And God is going to provide for them evidence and proof that I have, I am on the move and I have not, um, I am not, you are not unknown to me. Number two, it's to show the Egyptians that their gods that they worshipped were nothing. Because every one of the gods, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians served many gods, and every one of those gods had something to do with their environment, with with nature. Um, Now, Pharaoh's power was unstoppable from a, a human perspective. So the plagues were God's way of stripping them of their dependency on false gods. Really, really cool. So leading up to the plagues, God calls Moses and his brother Aaron because Moses doesn't really feel quite qualified for the job, so he pleads with God, please give me a helper, send someone with me, and God reluctantly gives him his brother Aaron. After meeting with God in the wilderness, uh, Moses and Aaron return to Egypt and gather the leaders of Israel and they let them know what God is up to. Here we're gonna pick up the story here in Exodus four, twenty nine through thirty one. It says this, it says, then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. There it is. They have this opportunity to hear from the people who have met with God. Their hope is returning. Their zeal for God is reignited. God has acknowledged their suffering and is on the move. So following this, Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh. That was the easy meeting with the people. God's coming. God's doing stuff. Let's go. Yeah, rah, rah, rah. Now go talk to Pharaoh. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that guy. After this presentation, so we're going to look at Exodus 5. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so? Retorted Pharaoh. And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't even know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with a sword. Now, they're using that because that's what their gods would do. So they're using this terminology. God never really said that necessarily, but they're using that to say your gods, when you don't serve them, kill you. You believe. So why would you want us? You're going to lose all your slaves. You're going to lose all the people that you have power over. So they're almost trying to use this as an upper hand. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land and you are stopping them from their work. So Pharaoh isn't having any of this. He has gods that he serves. Now, I want you to think about this. Not just one, but many. He isn't afraid of some seemingly weak god of the Hebrews that has been absent for 400 years, and then all of a sudden two guys show up that have lived in his palace and tell him, hey, the god of the Hebrews is back, and he's, gonna be, he's back and bad, man. He's better than ever. And he's like, "We're okay, I've never seen him. I don't know who he is. He's never done anything. He's, his people are enslaved. So how strong can he really be? So this is, it makes sense that he's reluctant to let their people go. Uh, the same, so Exodus 5, 6 through 9. That same day, Pharaoh sent this order to to the Egyptian slave drivers and Israelite foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. So Moses doesn't see any type of rescue plan coming together. Right, you sent me to Pharaoh to let your people go. I did it. Um, That didn't work out. I'm thinking, because now it's it's more work. We wanted less work and freedom, liberation. Now we've got more work and harder, uh, more slavery. So Exodus 5:22. Starts, it says, then Moses went back to the Lord and protested. Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you even send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesperson, he has been even more brutal to your people. And you have done nothing to rescue them. Can you imagine having the guts, the audacity to talk to your God like that? You, it, it, to be honest with you, it's okay to, get to let your frustration out at God. To talk to him in a way that's honest and real. As long as you're open to him talking to you in a way that's honest and real. So he says, you've done nothing. to I don't see any of your plan coming to fruition here. Then the Lord told Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my hand, he will let your people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. God's like, chill out, Moses. Stay the course, bro. Watch me do my thing. When everything is said and done, Pharaoh's going to be booting you out of his land. He's not going to know what to do with himself. So enter the 10 plagues. This is where it gets good. Like I said before, the Egyptians, like many pagan cultures of that day, worshipped a whole bunch of nature gods. They believed their powers were revealed uh, in things that we now know are simply uh, uh, results of nature and scientific occurrences uh, like the tide and the earth's rotation, uh, things like that. So this was, there was a god of the sun, a god of the river, a god of childbirth, of crops, of fertility, all sorts of gods that they worshipped. Uh, When the Nile River would flood once a year, they believed this to be evidence of their God's power. If you remember when Moses approached Pharaoh, demanding that he let his people go, Pharaoh responded with saying, Who is this Lord? I've never seen him. All I know are these other gods that I see every day. Because I believe in in, in these nature gods. So let's look at these plagues because every single one of these plagues, if you didn't know this, this is going to blow your mind about the plagues. Every single plague was to illustrate how how stupid it was to follow the gods that they followed with those. um, Because each plague is basically defeating the power and illustrating the weakness of that god. The first plague, turning the Nile into blood, was a judgment against the god of the Nile, the goddess of the Nile, and the guardian of the Nile. The Nile was also believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris who, who was reborn every year when it flooded. The river uh, formed a basis of daily life and economy for them because there were fish there and they could sell those fish and catch those fish. So the, the river was a, was a huge source of economy for the Egyptians. So the first plague basically wipes out, kills all the fish in, that, in, in, in the water in the Nile and they have no, now they have limited economy there. Where was their God that would save the Nile? Where was the goddess and God and the guardian of the Nile Didn't seem to show up. The second plague, bringing frogs from the Nile, was a judgment against Hekit, the the frog-headed goddess of birth. Now, I love this. one. I, don't, I just have this, this vengeful part of me that I love the plagues about because frogs were thought to be sacred to the Egyptians and not to be touched, not to be killed. If you were to kill a frog, it was seen as a very sacrilegious thing to do. All the homes of the Egyptians were invaded by frogs, but the best part was that at the end of it, all the frogs died, and there was now a heaping pile of dead frogs all over the land. The frogs that they had so kept so sacredly were now a heaping pile of decaying carcasses all over the land. God, you're so loving. Mm. He's making a point, though. Where was the God? Are they, they must not be very sacred if he can't even save them. You can't make this junk up, guys. The third plague, Nats, was a judgment against Set, the god of the desert. Now, up to this point, Pharaoh had magicians that could duplicate these, these plagues. So it was like, well, that's good. You turned water into Nile. Well, I got people, or the Nile into blood. I got people that can do that. Oh, that was cool. You sent, uh, you, you sent some uh, uh, frogs. Well, my people can do that. Watch this. But the third plague, Pharaoh, didn't, they couldn't duplicate it. And they actually told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The, the magicians are starting to get it. Uh, Pharaoh, we can't do that. Something's like, now it's past our ability. So something's going on here. So things are getting real. The fourth plague, flies, was a judgment on either Re or Uhachit, who were both depicted as flies. This one is cool because the flies only affect the Egyptians, but the the Hebrews don't get affected by the flies. So God is protecting his people while sending a plague to his enemies. The fifth plague, the death of livestock, was a judgment on the goddess of Hathor and the god Apeers who were both depicted as cattle. As with the previous plague, God protected his people from the plague while the cattle of the Egyptians all died. So we've got fish being wiped out and now cattle being destroyed. And God is destroying the economy one plague at a time, revealing to them that all the things that they depend on, all the things that they give to, all the things that their lives depend on are really not as great as they think they are that this God of Israel that seemingly was silent for so long really is the God of all the earth. So Pharaoh sent investigators to find out if the Israelites were suffering, and they weren't. All their cattle were fine. They, all, they had all their stuff they needed. So the sixth plague, boils, was a judgment against several gods over health and disease, uh, sacrament, sinu, and Isis. And then this time, the Bible says the magicians could not even stand before Moses. Clearly, the religious leaders were powerless against the God of Israel. The seventh plague, Hail, attacked Nut, the sky god, the sky goddess, Osiris, the crop fertility god, and Set, the storm god. This Hail was unlike anything they'd ever seen. In fact, fire came after it. It was a comp- the Hail was accompanied by fire, and anything that was in the field was destroyed. Anything that was uh, kept, uh, stored up was fine. Anything in storage was okay, but all the fields were now destroyed. So the only thing they had left was whatever they stored up. Then the next plague took care of that, though, because the locusts came, which focused on Nut, Osiris, and Set once again, and the later crops, wheat and rye, which had survived the hail, were now devoured by swarms of locusts. There would be no harvest in the land of Egypt that year. The ninth plague, darkness, was aimed at the sun god Re, who who was actually symbolized by Pharaoh himself. For three days, the land of Egypt was smothered in an unearthly darkness, but the homes of the Israelites had light. Man. He is revealing. Can you imagine an Egyptian doing whatever you're doing, and across the way, they got light. I can't even light anything. I can't do, Every time I try to do something, it turns into darkness. It seems mystical and crazy to me, but what, how come they got all this light? It's pretty neat. Now, the 10th plague, the last plague, was the death of the firstborn males. It's a pretty hard plague to understand, to be honest with you. It was a judgment on ISIS, the protector of children. Unlike the other plagues, which the Israelites survived by virtue, their mere virtue of identifying uh, with, the God, uh, with God, they, they couldn't do that anymore. They, still, they had to do the same thing that the Egyptians would have to do to be saved from this plague. This plague required an act of faith. God commanded each family to take an unblemished male lamb and kill it. The blood of the lamb was to be smeared on the sides and the tops of the doorposts. That's all you had to do. You had to have enough faith to simply kill a lamb with, with no blemishes, take its blood, and smear it on the sides and tops of your doorposts. Any family that did not follow God's instructions would suffer in the plague. Now, this was available to the Egyptians as well as the Israelites. This was God's way. This was God's, this, this was God's final call to say, if you, want, if, you, if you believe that I am who I say I am, here's your chance. Just, all you have to do is follow my instructions. It was given to everybody. Anyone could have done this. This wasn't reserved for the Israelites. In fact, the Israelites were not protected if they didn't do it. They had to do it too. And so everyone was, was available to be saved from this, uh, from this last plague. So God described how he would send a death angel through Egypt with orders to slay the firstborn male in every household, whether human or animal. The only protection was the blood on the, of the lamb on the door. Now when the angel saw the blood... He would pass over that house. He would pass over that house. That's where we get the term Passover lamb. The the angel of death passed over the house that had the blood of the lamb on it. This is where the term Passover comes from. It's a memorial of that night. They would celebrate this throughout history. The Hebrew people would continue to celebrate this, remembering God. It's kind of the same way we celebrate communion. We celebrate communion because we want to remember what God did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. The Hebrew people would celebrate this occurrence as the Passover feast in their communities once a year, and they would remember that God had saved them through these plagues. Now, when the Israelites, with the, while the Israelites found God's protection in their homes, every other land in Egypt uh, experienced God's wrath because they chose not to follow what he asked. This grievous event caused Pharaoh to finally release the Israelites. By the time the Israelites even left Egypt, they had a clear picture of God's power, God's protection, and God's plan for them. For those who were willing to believe, they had convicting evidence that they, were the true, that, that they served the true and living God. The New Testament established, now, now, now I want to make this really quick, connect. This is. I mean, this is like a no-brainer. This is like, this is the easiest connection when we talk about the story because the whole thing we're trying to do through this whole series is to connect every story in the Bible to the story of the Bible, the Bible of redemption, of Jesus coming. The New Testament establishes a relationship between the Passover lamb and Jesus Christ. Check out 1 Corinthians 5, 7. At the end of it, it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. His blood is just like the blood that was on the doorpost. When you have his blood, you will be passed over when it comes time to decide where you will spend the rest of your eternity. You will make it to heaven because of Jesus, not you, not your works, because of his blood. As the first Passover marked the Hebrew slaves... The Hebrews released from Egyptian slavery, so the death of Christ marks our release from the slavery of sin. John eight thirty four says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you didn't know that, please know that now, whoever, whenever, uh, everyone who sins is a slave to sin and we must have a redeemer. We need someone to come to our rescue. Nobody would have been able to stand up against Pharaoh too powerful, too majestic, too big except for one guy. His name was God. He can do anything. The prophet John the Baptist recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God. In John 1.29, the apostle Peter links lamb, links the lamb without defect from Exodus 12.5 with Christ, whom he calls a lamb without blemish or defect in 1 Peter 1.19. Jesus is qualified to be the one without blemish because his life was completely free from sin, according to Hebrews 4.14. In Revelation, John the apostle sees Jesus as a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, Revelation 5.6, and Jesus was crucified during the time that that yearly annual Passover feast would occur. Jesus was symbolically saying, while you are eating and remembering that Passover lamb from way back, I am the new, ultimate, greater, better Passover lamb. You will never have to sacrifice another lamb again. I am that lamb. That is amazing news for them who had been waiting for the Messiah. So if you remember, I told you earlier that I had two types of people who I'm targeting today. Those of you who are trying so desperately to follow Jesus, but have become weary of the journey discouraged by your sins maybe even losing hope see there's two gigantic mistakes that those of you who are discouraged are going to make today you've either decided i need to be more like more like moses and i need to trust god in his word because he always works things i just need to be more like moses or maybe you've said, I just need to be less like Pharaoh and depend on God instead of whatever idols I've built up in my life. I've got to be more like Moses and less like Pharaoh. Man, what do I do? Well, let me look at Moses and what he did. Let me look at Pharaoh and what he did. Let me do le- more like Moses. Let me not be like Pharaoh. Or maybe there's even a combination of both. And that's cool. Those are actually appropriate responses. They're just not complete. You've assessed the right symptoms. You've just prescribed the wrong cure. Because the only action steps you can make are all about you. You will have to try harder. You will have to search deeper. You will have to be better. You will have to pray more. You, 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 you. Good luck with that. Even when you make it to a place where you think you've done enough, you'll still question whether it was enough. Let me liberate you from your stressed out, anxiety filled spiritual life this morning. You are not the cure. That was your cure. It's already been dealt with. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Then Jesus said, Come to me who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Where do we go? We don't go to him with a stress-free, anxiety-free life. We go to him with our burdens, with our anxiety, so that he can give us rest. Why would we ever go to him in the first place if we already found our rest? Hey, God, I'm all rested. Oh, Well, you did it on your own. Okay. Carry on. Okay. Thanks for the the talk, Jesus. Friends, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has died for you. You are not to become more like Jesus, or more like Moses, the Old Testament Passover Lamb, although a reality in that time was more a mere foreshadowing of the ultimate and final Passover Lamb, Jesus. You are not to become less like Pharaoh as much as you are to celebrate the one who conquered your ultimate Pharaoh, Satan on the cross. Now, there's also two gigantic mistakes that those of you who are opposed to God are making today. You've either decided, I'm like Moses in the sense that, you know, I, 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 I look out for the distressed. I look, I look out for the bullies. I, I, I'm, I, I fight for the rights of other people. I'm a good, I'm a good dude. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I do good things for others. Or maybe you're like, I'm not like Pharaoh and I don't treat people like that. My goodness. Man, yeah, he deserved what he got. I don't do that. I don't enslave people and you know, if you came to my house, I wouldn't have people running around serving me all the time. I'm not making them build houses for me and all this craziness that Pharaoh is doing. Or maybe there's somewhere in there where you're just thinking, you know, you're like Moses, not like Pharaoh. Maybe you are nice. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe, maybe when you compare yourself to other people in your workplace or in your family, you are the nicest out of them. Maybe you do look out for others more than, the, more than the average person. Maybe you are more gentle with others than, than most people are. Maybe you don't even have a harsh bone in your body. Friends, as nice, kind, and gentle as you may see yourself, you are not as good as you think. If we claim we have, the Bible says this, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, and I'd say this in, in the most loving way I can. If we claim we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. That's a pretty powerful verse right there. Now, I want, to, I want to explain something to you because a lot of people who are opposed to God, I was one of them. I did not love Jesus my whole life. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. In fact, I, could, I didn't even want anything to do with Jesus up until the point when I was a young adult around 20, 21 years old. I lived my whole high school career not giving a rip about Jesus. In fact, I made fun of and mocked people that loved Jesus. And so I know what it's like to hear a message and I know what it's like to come to church. And I know what it's like to think through the idea that Christians just, and God just, is, is just seems brutal and yells at you and just tells you, to, you're not good the way you are. You're not good. You're not good. You're not good. And that obviously flies in the face of our culture, which says, you are good. You're a great person. You're a snowflake. You're an individual. Celebrate who you are. And God says, celebrate who I am because I am making up for all of your deficiencies. Now listen to this story. I want you to, maybe this will help bring it into perspective. There's a story of a father who had a daughter. They're at the grocery store and they're, they're, he's gathering up um, his stuff and he's putting it in the car. And the daughter wants to play a little game of hide and seek in the parking lot. So the daughter starts running, runs around the car and the father realizes the daughter's gone. He's looking around frantically. It's a parking lot. The father knows that there's cars in a parking lot that drive pretty fast. So, um, so he's frantically looking for his daughter. He sees her little head bobbing up and down around some cars. He runs over and grabs her. She starts crying because she wants to play the game. And he's like, "Honey, you can't go running around a parking lot. I, I love you. T- you can't do that. I love you too much. You're, you're gonna get. I can see things you can't see. I know things you don't know. Can you just trust me?" So he brings him back, brings her back in the car, puts her in, buckles, buckles her in the seat. They go home. They get out of the car. He's taking the groceries out of the car, and he's doing whatever he's doing. And all of a sudden, the daughter jumps out of the car again and starts racing for the street. Now, the father, knowing exactly what's coming, he can see that there's a car coming down the street, and yet his daughter is running towards it. And he can see the trajectory of both things, that if, if, if his daughter keeps going the way she's going, it is going to be disastrous. So he, because he's a loving, caring, genuinely authentic father, he looks out at the street, and he sees the car, and he sees his daughter, and he screams at her. He says, "Stop! Stop running! Don't run anymore! Stop! Stop! Stop!" The, the neighbors are probably like, "What is going on over there? Why is he yelling at her like that? Call, call the, call somebody. Tell him Call the police. No one should yell at their daughter. But he knows what's happening. Is that father unloving? Is that father uncaring?" Is that father abusive? Is that father, is he angry or is he loving right now? He is loving his daughter like crazy. So whenever we look at the God of the Bible, whenever we hear the message of something that says, I'm calling you out of the life that you're living now, that's because God sees the future of where you're going and he doesn't want you to go there. He doesn't want you to end up in the place that that's going to get you. You don't see it. We don't get it. He can see above and beyond everything we can see, just like the father and his daughter. The father can see beyond all the things a daughter sees. A daughter is tunnel vision. All she sees is the game she's playing. All we see is this life right here. God sees the next one. So all the things that may offend us about the God of the Bible are the very things that make him loving because he knows he would be the most he would be the most abusive god if he knew what he knew and said nothing can you imagine what the reports would say if the father just said i didn't want to i didn't want to offend my daughter so i just let her go you let her run into the street when you knew she was going to hit by the car i just didn't want to take away her fun i just didn't i just didn't want to hurt her feelings she's my little girl Give me a break. You'd be, a, you'd be the laughingstock of the community. People would look at you and go, you do whatever it takes to get your daughter back. You scream and you yell and you run and you, you, you embrace her and you pull her back. That's what you do. And when she's crying because she doesn't understand and when she's yelling at you and when she's talking about you at school and when she's texting all her friends how dumb you are and how you took away this when she gets older and all the things that people do, you don't care. You do what you do because you love your daughter. Friends, God does what he does because he loves us. And in our limited view, unfortunately, we give him a bad rap. He screams at us from the cross Come to me, come to me, come to me. You are broken. You are messed up. You are sinful. You are going to hell. But I don't want you to, so I'm going to do what it takes to get you there. That's his message. So those of you that are vehemently opposed to the God of the Bible, realize that he says what he says and he does what he does because he drastically and genuinely loves you. As we look at communion today, this is something that I think is amazing because we get to remember. Communion is about remembering because those of you that have grown weary, you get an opportunity to remember that God did everything for you. You can just rest in the Lord. You can come to him and just let the burdens fly and just say, God, speak to my heart. We're so busy doing, 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 trying to make up for the things we can't do so we can press God. And God's not impressed. God says, just come to me. Come to me. That's what I want you to do so that I can speak to you. Come empty-handed. Come empty so that I can fill you with what I want to fill you with. And you will walk away amazed. You will walk away rejuvenated. You will walk away refreshed. So today as we take communion, I'm going to ask you to think about that. I'm going to ask you to think, what is it today that I need God to refresh in me? And I want you to not try to ha- try harder and think deeper and pray more. I simply want you to rest at his feet and simply ask God, say, God, fill me whatever you want to fill me with today. Do whatever you want to do in me today. Whatever you want to do, wherever you're at, come to him. You don't know him? Come to him. You were once offended by the very message of the gospel. Maybe God's softening your heart right now. Come to him. You weary of the journey? Come to him. Are, did you come in here filled up, spiritually refreshed, ready to go for church? Come to him. That's what God desires of his people to simply come to him. We're going to show a video real quick of uh, just an intro video for our uh, communion. And uh, so after that, the ushers will serve you. Please wait to take communion until the end. We'll take it together. Um, but uh, you can sing along with the band as they, as they play and uh, we'll just uh, we'll take communion in a few minutes.